Well, here we are in what we call church. But really, church is not the building. Church is not the structure. It's not the property. Church is not necessarily a location. Now, we use that phrase, let's go to church, so that we know where we're actually heading. But really, the word church is not a building. It's actually you, the people. You're sitting here this morning listening to the Word of God because you're called the church. Now, here's why you're called the church. Because Jesus said he will build his church, not the building, but his people. When it comes to Jesus and the church, you play a big role in this. It's not just for us to be here this morning, but it's also for us to go out into the world. You see that word church means the called out ones. So we need to be called out of something in order for us to be called the church. And what are we called out of? We're called out of his goodness, his grace, his spirit. We're called out of a group setting like this so that we can go into the world and affect people and influence people for the love of God and bring them hope when it seems like everything else is hopeless. So this morning, Pastor Marcia is going to speak and continue in our series, Jesus and, and she's going to talk about Jesus and you, the church. Would you welcome up with me, Pastor Marcia Krieger, as she comes and shares. Let's welcome her up. Well, good morning. So we're ending our series, Jesus and, and I love that we're ending it by talking about the church. So let me give you a little bit of my history with the church. When I was growing up, if you asked me what religion I was, I would have said I was Catholic because that's what my mom said we were. It's not that we went to church because we hardly ever did, but mom said we were Catholic, so people say, what are you? And I'd say Catholic. Well, that went along okay until we lived in Canada, <clears throat> and then my grandmother called from New York. My Jewish grandmother called from New York. And she asked my brothers, hey, you know, how's things going, what's up and all that? And then my brothers decided that, hey, they have some good news. So they're going to tell our Jewish grandma that they're being baptized into the Catholic Church. Yeah, that didn't go well. So then a phone call occurred to my father. And shortly after that, the four of us kids would spend Friday nights gathered with a bunch of Jewish believers celebrating the Shabbat. But my mom wasn't going to be outdone because we were baptized in the Catholic Church, so we went to Sunday services at the Catholic Church. Now, that didn't last very long, but I did go to um, First Holy Communion. And there are things about First Holy Communion that just stuck to me. They, they, they just stayed in my heart. I remember one day heading off to um, Easter service. A neighbor had invited us, and my mom was taking the four of us. My dad was on deployment um, on a ship somewhere in the Mediterranean. And so this neighbor was taking us. It's Easter Sunday. And when you're trying to get four kids ready to go to church and you don't have help, it's kind of hectic. Well, in those days, if you went to Catholic church and you were a girl, you needed to wear a little thingy on your head. And so we're walking out, and my mom turns to look at me, and I don't have, a, um, I don't have anything on my head. And we're running late. So she looks around, and she picks up her lamp, off the end table, and in those days she had this lace doily on the table. And I remember taking it and shaking it, get the dust off, and then she stuck it on my head, and we went to church. So that was pretty much my experience. But like I said, what I learned in communion stuck with me. And so when my husband and I got married, and our first daughter was born, it was like, we have to baptize her. And he said, okay, let's do it. We'll baptize her Lutheran. And I went, oh no, she's got to be baptized Catholic. So we went back and forth. Now, mind you, both of us didn't go to church, but we fought about this. And so we're going back and forth, and finally I decided, okay, 
we'll just baptize our Lutheran. Because I had a cousin who told me, that's okay, baptize our Lutheran, and then when he's at work, we'll take it to the Catholic church. <laughs> so then we called the Lutheran pastor. And he came over. He actually came to our house and met with us. And so he's asking us questions. And then he says, so do you go to church? And we're like, ugh. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, maybe Christmas sometimes we go to church. And then he said this. He said, if I baptize your daughter, it's a waste of my time. And it's a waste of your time. Because if you're not going to continue to raise her in the faith, then what's the point of baptizing her? And then he said, but here's what I'm willing to do. I will come and I will meet with you for the next six weeks and we'll go through a Bible study. And then if you decide that that's something you want to follow through on and baptize your daughter, then I would be honored to baptize your daughter. And he did. And we committed our lives to Christ at that point. And our journey continued because 30 years later, here I stand. Now, here's the thing. That's my story. But every one of us sitting here in these chairs have a story. We have a story about how it is that we're sitting here in this building with this group of people in these chairs at this moment. And every one of our stories have their origins in one conversation that happened over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was with his disciples in Caesarea. And while they were there, he decided that he should ask them, so who do people say that I am? And they answered. And then he thought he'd take it a step further and go, well, who do you say that I am? And in the book of Matthew, Matthew, who was a tax collector and one of Jesus' disciples, records the conversation like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the force of Hades will not overpower it. See, this one conversation with Jesus' disciples was a defining moment when the church was first declared. And over 2,000 years later, across this entire globe, people gather in the name of Jesus every week in Bible-believing churches to praise and honor God. And each week, we gather around one central truth. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. But on the third day, he arose, and a whole lot of people saw him. Well, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was seen by a lot of people, and Jesus came along, and the people who, who interacted with him, people who witnessed him being alive after his death, spread out over Judea. And they were telling one incredible story. We saw Jesus die on the cross. We stood there and we watched him die the most horrific death. 
And as he died, we saw all our hopes and dreams die with him. We saw him taken down from the cross, and we saw him buried. And I know you're not going to believe this. This is incredible. But after they buried him, we actually saw Jesus. We spoke to Jesus. We ate with Jesus. This isn't something that happened long ago. This is not friend of a friend stuff, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, I saw Jesus. And this didn't happen far away. It happened right outside our city gates. And they were so compelling in telling their story that people believed them. And they began following them. And the church was born. One day, Peter, the disciple who walked with Jesus on the water, the only one, was walking with John. And they were going into the temple. And they saw a lame man. And so they looked at him. And they said to him, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man did. And when the people saw this, they went wild. Now Peter addressed them, and it's recorded in the book of Acts. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you, decide, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. See, Peter started off by telling them, what we're telling you is nothing new. You are part of this. You know Jesus died. You asked for it, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him. And Peter and the remaining 10 disciples were not the only ones telling the same story. See, later on, the apostle Paul who was a Pharisee. Now imagine this, he was a Pharisee. So he very likely was one of the Pharisees who was um, coming against Jesus. Very likely was one of the Pharisees who was calling for his death. And he's on his way into Damascus, and he wants to destroy the church. And he's going from town to town trying to destroy it. But he has an encounter with Jesus. And then he changes. And all of a sudden, instead of going from town to town to destroy the church, he's now going through the towns, and he's telling the gospel. He's telling the story of Jesus. Well, he was so successful that the Jews had gotten angry at him, and they had him arrested. And so he's standing before a Roman leader named Festus, and he's making his defense. And as part of his defense, he tells Festus about the fact that he was on his way to Damascus, and he sees a bright light, and Jesus speaking to him. And Festus says, Paul, you're crazy. All this learning is making you nuts. And then Paul has a reply, and he stands before him. And he says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. See, what happened to Jesus was public knowledge. It was out there. It was open. And so when these people are going around and saying, we saw him alive, when they were compelling about it, there was something to believe. And the church grew at an amazing pace. 
Luke was a physician. He wrote the book of Acts, and he writes, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So in a nutshell, that's the history of the church. Now, if you want to continue reading and learning, the book of Acts is amazing with that. So take some time and read it. But let me tell you something. It's not just amazing history that we need to know. See, understanding that is valuable to our understanding, our relationship with Jesus and with others. Because when Jesus told Peter he was building the church, he was speaking about all of us. And that's your first point. We are the church. We are the church that Jesus declared when he had that conversation with the disciples, when he said, who do people say that I am? When Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. We are the church he talked about. We'll go back to that. It says, and Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the force of Hades will not overpower it. See, Jesus has every intention of building his church. And it begins with you and I recognizing who he is. And the central truth that he continues to build his church on is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He died on the cross for our sins. God rose him from the dead on the third day. And lots and lots and lots of people saw him. And each time that someone hears that story, and each time that someone says, I believe that, and every time someone makes that confession of faith, Jesus continues to build his church. Paul describes it this way in a letter to the Ephesians. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And we are called to continue the work that he began when he walked on this earth. Now, years ago, some of you may remember this, they had these bracelets. They had WWJD on them. You guys remember that? What would Jesus do? And it was supposed to serve as a reminder that whenever, whatever situation you're in, before you respond to somebody, before you react, you remember what would Jesus do in this situation. And it was supposed to help us to be better representatives of Christ in the world. And I actually had one of those. But then one day, I kind of realized this question's wrong. It's not the right question. Because if I'm the church... If I'm part of the body of Christ, then it's not what would Jesus do because when I'm in the situation, Jesus is in the situation. So the question is not what would Jesus do. The question is, what are you going to do in this situation, Jesus? How am I going to respond as you would in this situation? How will I be you in this? As part of his body, as part of his church, we bring his presence. We bring his hope. We bring his encouraging. 
we bring his love into every situation because we are the church. Now, bigger than that, as part of his body, the church, and you can write this in number two, we have a unifying purpose. Before he left his followers behind and before he returned to heaven, Jesus gave one final instruction. See, he planned for the disciples to carry out the plan that he had all along. And he'd spent year, three years with them. He trained them, he equipped them, he cast vision to them, and he taught them how to do it. He said, this is it. You're it. There is no plan B. You're the church. They were it. This is what he said. Uh, Matthew records it. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And when God, Jesus gave this commission, it wasn't just to his disciples over 2,000 years ago. He is continuing to build his church. Therefore, each one of us sitting here right now has a greater purpose in life. Each one of us is individually gifted and we're talented to carry out that greater purpose. In a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, Now therefore, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the, the Spirit for the common good. So each one of us is equipped with differing gifts. We have differing talents and different abilities, but they're all intended to be used to equip others, to encourage them, and to build them up. Paul continued this thought in a letter to the Ephesians, and he wrote, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. In other words, every one of us here does not stand alone. We serve alongside each other. And according to Paul, our unique, our unique gifts and talents are to be used in conjunction with the gifts and talents of those around us. They're to be used in partnership, yielding our own demands and rights. Now, that's not what was happening in the church of Corinth. They had developed some wrong views. And so there was division, there was competition, there was jealousy, and there was rivalry. This wrong attitude had crept in, and wanting to correct this error before the church was destroyed, Paul wrote the letter that we now recognize as 1 Corinthians. And so to correct their weak attitude, he wrote, As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, 
And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. See, what he's saying is there is no better, there is no worse, there is no somebody more holy, less holy, there is no someone more accepted, less accepted. In God's eyes, we're all accepted, we're all equal. But Paul had to remind them that each person, each gift, each talent was of equal value and importance within the church. Because something like this, how many of you like this building, our facilities? I like it. I do. And sometimes I actually forget how wonderful our facilities are. And then I meet someone who's new and has never been here, and then through their words and through the things they say, I'm like, man, we're blessed. But this facility isn't built on one thing. See, there's so many things that go into constructing a building. So I have some slides we're going to put up, and we're going to see if we can guess what some of these are. Okay, so what is that? That's part of a building. Nail, right? We need nails, right? It holds things together. Okay, next. The two by four is a wood because you have to have something to nail. Okay, next. Yeah, because you've got to get in. Okay. Right, especially in Hilo, we need that to keep the rain off of us. Yeah, so we can see the beautiful outside. Okay. Screws, because sometimes nails just ain't strong enough. Okay. Cement, because you have to build on something. It's cement, because you got to build on something. Now, let me ask you something. When we're building this church, if somebody came with truckloads of nails, just truckloads, and we dumped it all out, would we have this building? If we had only wood, could we have this building? Iron roofing, glass. But what if only one person built it? Could it be built without someone who is gifted and talented as a carpenter, as a plumber, as a mason, as a painter? as a drywall specialist. See, this building can't be built without a lot of pieces and a lot of people. Kind of like God's picture of the church. And in the same way, we need to partner with each other. We need to appreciate each other's gifts, and we need to value and treat each other in a way that expresses that gratefulness and that value. We can't disrespect each other. And as God continues to build this church, and actually this is point three, we need to work with, not against each other. Work with, not against each other. A few months ago, someone gave my husband and I a rowboat. And so we took it out, and I had this vision, because, you know, we all see the movies, right, that we're going to be out there in the um, bay, and he's going to be rowing, and we're going to have this nice conversation, and it's going to be all, you know, sweet and comfortable and relaxing, the sun would be setting, you know, the whole thing. And it was fine until I got in the way. Because I'm competitive, and he made it look so easy, I thought, oh, I can do this. So I said, let me row. And he goes, you sure you want to row? I can do it. When you go to the gym, I use the rowing machine. How hard is that? 
push forward, you pull back. You push forward, you pull back. So he says, you know, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I want to do it. So I took the oars, and that's when my left side and my right side rebelled against each other. And all of a sudden, we weren't this nice little smooth rowing. It's like we were going in whichever direction. We were going in circles, but not fun circles. It was like it depended on which part of my arm, which arm was stronger. Sometimes the left, the right was stronger, and we'd go that way. And, then sometimes, and it was choppy and rocky, and it wasn't fun anymore. And it was ugly, actually. And it was rough, and it was so uncoordinated, and it was such hard work. Now, sometimes I think that when other people look at the church, or when God looks at the church, that's what he looks at. That's what he sees that we're choppy, that we're rough, that we're not coordinated, that we're not partnering together, that we're rebelling against each other. Instead of allowing each other to be unique and passionate in their areas of gifting, we kind of want them to look like us, to act like us, to have service the way we have service, to believe the way that we believe, and to do the same things that we do. We want others to match our expectations, and then when they don't, we grumble, we complain, or we gossip about them. We tear each other down with our own words, with our own judgment, and by doing that, we tear the church down from the inside. There's a medical term for when our body attacks itself. When the physical body attacks itself, it's called an autoimmune disease. And it says, it's defined this way, in immune system overactivity, the body attacks and damages its own tissues. Immune deficiency diseases decrease the body's ability to fight invaders, causing vulnerabilities to infections. When we begin to battle against each other, we cause ourselves to become vulnerable to outside negative influence we open up ourselves to attack. The book of Ephesians says it this way. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, I honestly believe that each time I react to someone by becoming angry, by gossiping, by becoming jealous, by complaining, by name-calling, by tearing down. That's my list. What's on your list? See, each time that we give in to what our flesh is feeling, I'm doing the work of the enemy against my brothers and sisters in the church. Paul discovered this in his encounter with Jesus. His name had not yet been changed. He was still Saul the Pharisee. And he absolutely hated the young church. He saw it as a perversion of the Jewish religion, and if he had his way, he would rid the world of it. And that's what he began to do. The Bible says in the book of Acts, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which was the church, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. See, Paul was traveling to Damascus. He was going to wipe out the church. If he had his way, there'd be nothing left. But along the way, Jesus stopped him. And Jesus said, you are persecuting me. He didn't say, you're hindering something that I'm doing. He didn't say, you're hurting the people that I love. He didn't say, you're destroying my work. He said, pause, you're persecuting me. And every single time that I, I speak against, I come against, I gossip about, I tear down, I grumble against, any time that I try to harm another believer, I'm persecuting Jesus. But the account continues. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And because Saul paused and asked Jesus what's next, he changed. He stopped being Saul, the persecutor of the church. And he became Paul, the apostle. One of the key people that God used, not just to birth the church, but to build it and to write most of the New Testament. He became the biggest champion of the new church. And I think we need to learn from Paul. We need to stop attacking each other. And we need to ask Jesus, what do I do next? And then we will be stronger members of the bodies of Christ. And not only that, we'll partner in building and growing the largest global-spanning movement in the history of the world will be the church that Jesus was building. Amen? Let's put away your Bibles and your notes. We're going to pray. You know, I love that we're called the church, that we're called the body. But I believe that there are some people that are sitting here that are saying, you know what, I've never made that decision. I've never confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that he is the Messiah, that he died on the cross for my sins, that God rose him from the dead for my forgiveness, and that he's coming back for me. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance to make that confession, to receive Jesus. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you say, you know what, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior. Would you raise your hand so we can pray for you? I see you. I see right here. Right here, right here. I see right here. Thank you. Right back here. Okay, I see you here. Right here. Right here, I see you. God bless you guys. I see you back there, right here. God bless you. Right here, God bless you. Anybody else? Bless you right there. Okay, you can put your hands down. Cal, we're all going to pray. And those of you who are praying for the first time, pray this prayer from your hearts. And the rest of us, let's pray it as a reminder. Would you repeat after me? Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. I believe that you died 
that you rose again, that you are coming back for me to receive me into your kingdom. Lord Jesus, come into my life. And I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for those that are here. May we be changed, Lord God, and be your church. May we represent you, not because we are trying to represent you, but because you dwell within us. And in every situation that we are in, we bring you. So may we leave these doors today, go out into our communities, and be the church that you spoke about over 2,000 years ago. We love you, Lord, and we declare this day that you are our king. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen.